Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in sections 102 through 105. We're going to be talking about Zion's camp. That's 103 and 105. And 102 is about councils. And 104 is about the cessation of the united firm that lasted a couple years. So and the Lord's going to hand out some stewardships, and we'll yes. get a glimpse as to what the future would look like as we transition into the law of consecration and begin to receive our own stewardship. So that'll be good. But we're going to start with 102. This is the formation of the first high council. And yes, this is kind of written as minutes of the meeting, but what flows out of 102 are some tremendous principles for modern-day councils. And all of us participate in councils at some level, whether that's the family council or the ward council or a youth council or a state council or all the way up to the council of the 12, the council of the three, meaning the first presidency the 70 council. This church is run by councils, and the reason for that is in verse 2, for the purpose of settling important difficulties. That's why we operate in councils. It's so that we can settle important difficulties. So whether you lead a council or are a member of a council, let me just kind of walk through some governing principles that will help us all be better members of a council. Now, let me jump to, we've done this before, but because we're here in 102, let me just give a brief reminder of what we talked about. I'd like to actually jump to verse 19 to begin. Sometimes we have this misnomer in our heads that the council's going to decide on a course of action, but that's not what the Lord calls for. Most councils in the church have a president or a bishop or a leader that's in charge. So in verse 19, the Lord says, The president shall give a decision according to the understanding which he shall have of the case. So most councils conclude when the leader of the council hears the counsel that's been given and then makes a decision. Now notice in the next two verses, starting in 20 through 22, it talks about an error. If they discover an error in the decision of the president. But what constitutes an error? If you don't like the bishop's decision, does that necessarily make it an error? Well, the bishop decided we're going boating for youth conference instead of camping, and I really wanted to go camping, and so that's an error because it's not what I wanted. Does that make it an error? No. 21 and 22 kind of explain what would make the president's decision an error. It says in 21, if after a careful rehearing, any additional light is shown upon the case, the decision shall be altered accordingly. Now, if no additional light is given, the first decision shall stand, meaning if no additional light was given, there was no error in the case. But if information came in after the decision that the president didn't have at the time, then we change the decision based on the new information. That is the essence of the council. The whole point of coming together is to share our perspectives so that the president can see from all of these different perspectives and make a decision. His decision is an error when you hold back information that he needed at the time. If you've held back your perspective, if he's missing a vital point of view, he's most likely going to make an error in his decision. But if he has seen your point of view, if he's gathered all the information and there's no more light to offer, then the decision will stand. That should tell each council member exactly what their responsibility is. It's the contrary views that the president needs to hear. So it's only until everyone speaks up. Now, that's what I love about what Joseph Smith did here in organizing this council. Verse 3 talks about the variety of the people he chose for the council. We'll put this in the show notes. We'll show you the age of the different members of the council as well as the different professions 
among the council members. And what you'll see is Joseph is spreading out their experience. He calls young men, middle-aged men, and old men to the council. He calls doctors and farmers and business people to the council. In other words, our councils are only going to be effective if the people there represent the breadth of understanding among our ward or among the group that we're representing, which is why it's so important that children are represented and teenagers are represented and women are represented and everyone is represented to say, here's my perspective so that the president can make a wise decision. That's the main purpose of counseling. Okay, now let's jump to verse 12. The idea here is they're supposed to cast lots. Every counselor gets a number. They cast lots, they draw numbers. And if it's not very difficult case, it says two people were to speak. If it's a difficult case, four people. If it's a really difficult case, six people. And then in verse 14, it says, in no case shall more than six be appointed to speak. And I think the point here is there's a balance between too much information and not enough information. Too many people speaking and not enough people speaking. So in our councils, there is a limit. There is a point where we've had too much sharing, too much talking. It's time for a decision. Bryce, I think both of you and I have sat in councils where we've seen that. Go on and on and on. Hearing it repeated. Don't need to hear it again. And the meeting has to end at some point. And so I think at the at the end of the day, do you have additional light? If you don't, then we need to we have enough information to make the decision. It's not a matter of, oh, there's lots of people who have this opinion. We've heard that point of view. But the other side of of that is you always make sure at least two people talk. So there always needs to be enough information, but not too much. And then I love in verse 15 that half the council is assigned to basically look for justice, and the other half of the council is assigned to look for mercy. So half the council is looking to defend the accused person, look for him or her and her perspective and their rights and see things from their perspective. So in other words, sometimes the president says, I'm going to assign you to see this evidence from the point of view of the person that's being accused. And then I'm going to assign you to see this from the point of view of the victim or the church. It is important that we see every side of the situation. So I love that in many of our councils, we actually assign counselors to see from a certain point of view to make sure that point of view is represented. You know, Bryce, there's an interesting verse here in this revelation, verse 18. In all cases, the accuser and the accused shall have a privilege of speaking for themselves before the council after the evidences are heard and the counselors who are appointed to speak on the case have finished their remarks. So there's a little bit of a shift in this section where it talks about difficult cases. Some of the cases in church history and even today involve membership, involve accusations made in the church, involve sin, and the councils have to decide how to handle these situations in all of these circumstances. But not only are the counselors going to hear all sides, they're to represent those positions and speak in their behalf. And this is important in understanding that in the early church, the Lord is working with Joseph Smith to handle these difficult issues. There will be times when difficult issues come forth, and sometimes it involves accusations made by people in the church. And so this is how these issues are handled. There's only one object in the council, and that is to arrive at the truth of the matter and to let fairness and justice prevail. Yeah. At the very end, it talks about the distinction between, in our case, stake and ward councils and the council of the Twelve and the First Presidency, that there is a final council and that you can't appeal beyond the First Presidency. So yes, if the parties aren't satisfied, they can appeal to a higher council, but there is a head and that's it. We don't go further than that. And if you're a history nerd, you might be wondering why those verses are in there. We don't have the Quorum of the Twelve and Zion's camp hasn't happened yet. And the reason why those verses are in section 102 is because Joseph Smith added them later in 1835. And so just know that in the construction of these texts that we call the Doctrine and Covenants, they too have a history. And as a Bible nerd, I got to say, 
understanding how the Doctrine and Covenants came to be can really help students understand how the Old Testament came to be. So I think we can see the same kinds of things in the construction of the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to viewing these things through the lens of history. That's a case in point. So later on, further light came to Joseph Smith, and he went back and he altered this text to match the further light that he received. That reminds everyone that the importance is that everyone needs to share their perspective. Just to conclude this, can I take you to Acts chapter 15 and show you a council made up of apostles? This is where Peter gathers the twelve to discuss in council, well, what part of the law of Moses do we keep and what part of the law of Moses do we end? Do the converts need to be circumcised or was that simply a part of the law of Moses? So let me just show you a council in progress. Acts chapter 15. So verse 2, they gather about a question. Verse 6, the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. Now look at verse 7. When there had been much disputing, and I don't read that as arguing or yelling back and forth as much as now is the time for discussion. That is the moment where we need to speak up and share our perspective. After there had been much disputing. Now watch the president stand up. Peter arose and said, meaning he made a decision. Peter, the president of the council, after hearing their discussion, made a decision. Now verse 12, all the multitude kept silent. There was no need to discuss anymore. The president had all the light that we had offered and had made a decision, and now they're silence. Now we need to come together. This is where there needs to be unanimity. Even if we didn't agree about the decision, there should be consensus that we are all going to move forward that direction. Even though if the bishop chose to do something that I didn't want to do, the decision was this and I'm on board. This is where our allegiance needs to be to the president. And we say he had the information, he chose to go a different direction, but I now support that. And that's what they do. They sent that message out to the different churches and they were united. If there's not consensus, during the discussion part, there can be consensus and support after the president has made a decision. I just want to balance that, Bryce, with experiences told by modern apostles where, in general, they did not move forward with the president's decision until all of them agreed. For example, Boyd K. Packer, he said, and always, if one of us cannot understand an issue or feels unsettled about it, it is held over for future discussion. Another quote by Gordon B. Hinckley, no decision emanates from the deliberations of the first presidency and the Twelve without total unanimity among all concerned. President Hinckley says further, I add by way of personal testimony that during the 20 years I served as a member of the Council of the Twelve and during the nearly 13 years that I've served in the first presidency, there has never been a major action taken where this procedure was not observed. I have seen differences of opinion presented in these deliberations. Out of this very process of men speaking their minds has come a sifting and winnowing of ideas and concepts, but I have never observed serious discord or personal enmity among my brethren. I have rather observed a beautiful and remarkable thing, the coming together under the directing influence of the Holy Spirit and under the power of revelation of divergent views until there is total harmony and full agreement. Only then is implementation made. That, I testify, represents the spirit of revelation manifested again and again in directing this the Lord's work. Another quote, James E. Faust said, This requirement of unanimity provides a check on bias and personal idiosyncrasies. It ensures that God rules through the spirit, not man through majority or compromise. It ensures that the best wisdom and experience is focused on an issue before the deep, unassailable impressions of revealed direction are received. It guards against the foibles of man. So that's really good. Yeah. So those are some wonderful principles that flow out of section 102 and Acts chapter 15. Hopefully they can help you in your assignment to counsel, and we can be better and solve difficult issues. Okay. Let's talk about 103. 
Section 103, this is the command to gather men for Zion's camp. And this is given in the beginning of 1834. And the background to this is all the violence that's happening in Missouri in 1833, beginning with the destruction of the printing press and independence. And after the Saints signed the agreement that they would leave Jackson County, Joseph wrote letters back to the, to the leaders in Missouri, asking them to do all that they could to retain their property. And so they did, and they retained a law firm. They sought to find an agreement between the people in Jackson County that wanted the saints out and the Latter-day Saints. And the lawyers for the church and the lawyers that represent the government write letters to each other back and forth. And they're corresponding, and they're trying to find a way that they can agree on what they're to do. Now, between July of 1833 and November 21st of 1833, there's a lot of things that happen. We have the July mobbing that happens in Jackson County and in Independence, where the bishop is tarred and feathered. Then we have violence that happens in October. At the end of October, the enemies to the church find out that we've retained legal counsel, and they look at that as the the church is reversing its decision to get out of Jackson County, and so they exercise violence. They burn, uh, they burn and destroy a gristmill. They destroy a lot of homes. There's more violence in the beginning of November, and then there's a fourth set of violence in what's called the Battle of Blue River. One historian writes this, In October 1833, Missourians raided isolated Mormon homes, which was the second major attack of your enemy. If you remember the revelation where the Lord says, if they attack you three times, then they're in your hands. So on November 1st, the mobs destroyed the church's gristmill in Independence, and they attacked a bunch of Mormon homes there. This was the third attack, and in compliance with the August revelation, they again chose, the saints did, to bear it patiently. The next night, the Missourians raided Mormon settlements in the Blue River Valley. This time, it was the fourth attack. And so members of the church surprised their enemies by fighting back. And this is where we hear about the Battle of Blue River that happened on the 4th of November. And in this battle, Book of Mormon witness to the plates, David Whitmer led members of the church in actually killing two Missourians. And so in response, Jackson County's leaders called out the militia. And this is when members of the church surrendered their weapons and began leaving their homes after the Battle of Blue River. A month later, Joseph Smith dictated a revelation concerning the redemption of your brethren who have been scattered on the land of Zion and in avenging me of mine enemies. In order to do this, the revelation commanded Joseph to organize at least a hundred of the strength of my house and to go to the land of Zion. And then it said, whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake the same is not my disciple. Now, this is section 103 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 1 and then 26 through 34. So this is the beginning of what we're going to call Zion's camp. That violence in the beginning of November brought about a crisis. The saints are now homeless and it's winter. And so the lawyers that the church has retained, Atchison and Donovan are the two main ones, they write a letter to Robert Wells. And Robert Wells is the attorney general of the state. And in the show notes, we've posted the letter that Wells wrote to the law firm that represented the church. And in this letter, he basically says that if the saints decide to be replaced in their property, that is their houses in Jackson County, an adequate force will be sent forthwith to affect that object. He communicates to the lawyers for the church that if they gather up a group of men that are willing to go and defend their lands, that the state government will send in troops to assist them to repair them to their property, retain their lands, and establish peace. And that letter is dated November 21st, 1833. That is so important. The lawyers are writing letters and they come to that arrangement. That is then communicated to Joseph when messengers come up from Missouri and Joseph has that, as Bryce has talked about with councils, that's additional light that he now has. He now has that assurance from the government that the saints can retain Zion, that they can retain their lands. Now, backstory, the governor, 
Governor Dunklin does not like the Latter-day Saints. And so in the show notes, we also post another letter that he writes after Zion's camp arrives, and it's like a totally different letter. He basically reverses the promise. Uh, Governor Dunklin reverses the promise, and he basically says, hey, listen, um, yeah, I'm, we're not going to help you. And They're, that's after they've gone the whole yes. distance. Now, Kirtland, Ohio to Jackson County is not a skip in the park. It isn't. It is a long distance. And after they've gone that whole distance, based on the assurance of Attorney General Wells, they go all that distance only to have the governor at the very end say, hey, never mind, we're not going to support you. Th- this is so important on so many levels. I think one of the reasons why, to me, it's important when the members of Zion's camp arrive, Joseph receives a revelation that they're to wait for a little season and that Zion will be redeemed later. And Zion's camp disperses and many individuals in Zion's camp want, they wanted to fight. They wanted to have a war. They went there ready to fight and to kill Missourians. There's, they're very disappointed when that doesn't happen. You have the, the enemies of the church on one side. You have the saints who have lost their homes. I can't imagine young Joseph Smith, 1834, a 29-year-old prophet. The weight on his shoulders must have been tremendous. I can't imagine the sleepless nights he had and the responsibility he felt for these people. And him doing his best as trying to lead the saints to some kind of resolution. And he had the assurance of the government that they would help them. And then when they walk all the way down, like Bryce says, this is about 900 miles. And according to historical sources, they walk 25 to 40 miles a day. I mean, we're talking over 30 days of constant walking. And by the way, they're walking in the heat of the summer. And then they get there, and then the governor reverses his position. And politicians do that all the time. But if you think about this, This is a county with about 4,000 people, and 1,200 of them are Latter-day Saints, and they're not even being treated like citizens. I mean, if there was a big issue where people couldn't get along in this nation, we go to the courts, but they're not even treated like citizens. Their, Their homes are burned. 200 homes are burned. Hundreds of thousands of dollars is lost, and this is also the context for the United Firm. You see... When the saints have to dissolve the United firm, part of that is because of the massive losses they've taken in the mercantile establishment and the printing press and those buildings that were just destroyed. And so that's another thing that you have to kind of take this as another layer. And and so one way to maybe talk about this, and it depends on your audience, is to liken it to real life. And I just want to share this story about... A, person that I taught many years ago, she really felt strongly that she needed to move. And she was single and she had these promptings that she needed to leave the country. And that would take great faith. And she prayed about it and she just kept having these promptings. And so she did. She left the country and went to a foreign land and was involved in the church and had a great career in this foreign land. And as she was engaged with the things going on in her single adult ward, she met a young man, and as they got to know each other even more, it was like they were meant to, to be. They were meant to be together. And over time, they fell in love. And they set up a time to be married, and then right before the wedding, he decided that he wasn't ready to get married for whatever reason, and that she was not to be the one. She was devastated. And she shared this story with me in the hopes that she could communicate to me and to those that were listening to the story, that sometimes the Lord will give a revelation and we follow it. And we know it's, we know the source, we know where it's from, but agency played a role in the outcome. We've seen this so many times in the history of the church, you know, the loss of the 116 pages. We've seen this in the mission to the Lamanites where you get a prompting from the Lord and you make assumptions And then things don't go the way you wanted, and you begin to question, well, was that prompting divine? Did the prompting come from the Lord? And I think the point of all of this is, did you follow the prompting you had at the time? That's the message we have to send to the Lord, is I'm going to follow the prompting. These men went out there intending on doing their job and freeing the saints and bringing them back to their land. And when that didn't happen, they were disappointed. They felt like the whole thing had been a failure. 
But then the Lord gives this revelation of section 105. They're almost to Jackson County. They're on Fishing River. They're just within arm's reach of Jackson County. And this is where the Lord says, okay, we're not going to finish this. We're not going to go in there and fight. We're not going to go redeem the lands. That's not going to happen. And then he says in verse 19, it is expedient in me that they should be brought thus far for a trial of their faith. Yeah. And I can imagine the frustration. Like my friend who went to a foreign country and was to get married, and then it didn't happen. Or many of you have had experiences when you prayed and you felt inspired and then you went and moved forward and then you were told to wait for a little season. So I think if we read Zion's camp through that lens, through the personal lens of our lives, verse 19 of section 105 and verse 9, that could be its own lesson. It could be its own sermon about what it means to follow Christ and the dance between revelation, agency, and the messiness of humanity. I have a friend who, when he retired and he was going to spend the time with his spouse, she got cancer and died. And he thought, but I I wanted to enjoy the season of my life. And sometimes when I think about this, it's very personal to me because I have friends who had extreme losses, and yet it doesn't negate our faith. In fact, maybe it enhances it. And it, it pushes us to a Redeemer who will correct all of those wrongs. We believe that we are here in this fallen world and that we will suffer temporary injustices. And sometimes the little season we have to endure is grievous to be born. But luckily, we have a Redeemer who will fix every one of those and make them right. I trust that in His own way, in His own time, Jesus will correct every injustice that comes to us in this fallen world. Every challenge that we face, the victory is not our own. The victory is the Savior's. So I love this story of Zion's camp. I love the Joseph of Zion's camp. He is human, but I love him. Yeah. Now, during this conflict, Joseph was praying for three months, and he was trying to get an answer, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it had to have been a trial for Joseph's faith. One of the things I like, Bryce, is in the book Saints— and I believe it's chapter 18. We cite it in the show notes. And Bryce, one of the reasons why I like it is I was looking at Saints in the Gospel Library app, and if you touch any of those footnotes, it takes you right to the historical sources. I would highly encourage you to go to that chapter on the Camp of Israel or Zion's Camp, because there's so many stories and so many great sources there. It is one great treasure of information in terms of church history. And here's why I think it's a great trial of their faith, because in that chapter, it mentions that during this conflict, Joseph was praying for three months, and he was trying to get an answer, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it says in there that it seemed as if the heavens were closed. And I think that's so important, because if you're listening to this right now, and you've been praying to know something, and you haven't had the answer, I mean, you have a good friend in Joseph Smith, because if there was anything that mattered, it was Zion. And he prayed, and the Lord didn't tell him. And I don't know all the reasons why, but I look, Bryce, I look at verse 19, and it had to try Joseph's faith. No question. But not only that, but history will probably look at Zion's camp and say, what a failure. You marched those people all that distance and told them the whole time that they were going to fight, and they were going to reclaim lands, and they were an army, and they were going to do this great work and defend their brethren. And then at the last minute, you say, never mind, go home. History will say that was a failure. But here's the thing that history doesn't understand. In February 1835, not too far away from this, we will form the first quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and we will organize seven presidents of the Seventy. Nine of the first Twelve Apostles and all seven presidents of the Seventy were in Zion's camp and showed their loyalty and their faithfulness to the prophet Joseph Smith. So it's pretty hard for us to call that a failure. But back to Mike's point, sometimes you follow a prompting and you create an expectation of what's going to happen, and then that doesn't happen. But we ought to, before we call it a failure, we've got to realize that perhaps the Lord had other reasons for sending you there. 
reasons that you may not even know at the time, and that we ought to trust the Lord, that those promptings were real and they were right, and that it was a good thing to go to Jackson County, and it was a good thing for those men to march hundreds of miles with Joseph Smith. And even though that was a trial of their faith, many good things came out of it. We've got to remember that agency is involved here. Governor Dunklin had agency and could choose to act. Now, does that mean they shouldn't have come? No, that doesn't mean they shouldn't have come. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't have followed the prompting. You should have followed the prompting because you so you said to Heavenly Father, when you give me a prompting, I'm going to act on it. But then other people made other choices and it didn't come to fruition. But Lord, I'm still going to act on the promptings you gave me and I'm going to be where I should be even if other people aren't making the decisions that's going to bring that to fruition like I expected. It's so important. So when they went south on Zion's camp, George A. Smith was just 17 years old. And he kept a journal, and he was able to remember these things. And there's a really good video by the church portraying the account through the eyes of George A. Smith, and I really like it. I think it's really interesting that one of the main accounts of Zion's camp is told through the eyes of a 17-year-old boy. And he was a, a plain country boy wearing a crushed straw hat and striped pantaloons, too short for his long body. And Joseph Smith would send him out when the camp passed through a town to answer questions that the townspeople might direct towards the camp, because if a young 17-year-old's answering their question, it would seem less forbidding. And George A. Smith would do things like carry water and, and help with the, with the cooking that Zebedee was doing. And he made note in his journal of his feet being sore and hot and how they would walk for 25 to 40 miles a day. And he talked about how he would, when they sometimes had to get the water that was not the best, that he had to strain the wigglers with his teeth as he drank the water. And he even mentioned in his journal that there was a time when Joseph Smith lent him a pair of his own boots because his feet were just in such pain. He also talks about that there were times when uh, the bread was not good. It was kind of sour. And sometimes the cook would give Joseph Smith the good sweet bread. And Joseph would not do it. He'd say, you know what, I'm going to eat just like everybody else. And so it's a long journey, and a lot of it was just tedium. But in the midst of these, there were times where, as Heber C. Kimball said, that even angels were with the camp. And this revelation in section 105 to go home, that your sacrifice has been enough, was given June 22nd. And as we've discussed, not everyone was excited about this. Many complained when they heard this revelation, and Joseph warned them that that attitude and that spirit that was divisive would cause difficulty in the camp. And so historically, we know that later on June 24th, many in the camp get cholera, and eventually 68 individuals get cholera, get sick, and 13 die. And that was a great trial to their faith. Uh, the, the cholera that struck the camp. And I can only imagine what that must have been like. And George A. Smith writes about this. And in his view, he sees part of this as that divisive spirit. Now, I don't. I kind of look at this and I say, well, we kind of know what causes cholera, right? But that doesn't mean I'm right. I, I, I don't know all the things and all, all the ways that this happened. Uh, and, I, and I'm certainly not in charge, and I certainly don't know, but I look at this story and I read it through the lens of George A. Smith and others that were there, and they saw this as the Lord rebuking them for their division. And I see that as just one more struggle that they had to get through. But I think it's also good to know what Joseph's plan was. He had a plan. Yeah. And the plan was, we're going to work with the government, we're going to go back, we're going to establish peace, they were going to rebuild their homes. And this is in correspondence that he has with other members of the Twelve, correspondence with members of the Church, but even hinted at in the Revelation of 105 that they're going to return in two years. And the context for them being able to return and to reestablish their homes, part of this is D&C 105, verse 24, and this is what it says. Talk not of judgments, neither boast of faith, nor mighty works. This is the Lord counseling the saints. But carefully gather together as much in one region as can be, consistently with the feelings of the people. And so 
if you go to the show notes, you can see we have a map there. And on the map, north of Jackson County is a little teeny place called Clay County. And the majority of the saints go to Clay County. Some of them go to Van Buren and some of them go to Lafayette. But the bulk of them go to Clay County. And the Lord says, if you guys can behave yourselves, look what he says in verse 25. Behold, I will give unto you favor and grace in their eyes that you may rest in peace and safety. And then he says in verse 26, Behold, I say unto you, my friends, in this way you may find favor in the eyes of the people until the army of Israel becomes very great. And then later in verse 29, the land should be purchased. And so much of it had been, but the Lord wants them to continue. And then finally, verse 31, but let my army become very great. The idea was that they would be able to return. And the the ask or the commandment that the Lord gave them was verse 24, that you guys behave yourselves. Even back in section 103, when he calls Jackson County, he says, "...inasmuch as they hearken from this very hour unto the counsel which I, the Lord their God, shall give unto them, behold, they shall, for I have decreed it, begin to prevail against mine enemies from this very hour." By hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of this world are subdued under my feet, and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. So once again, way back in 103, and again in 105, he's kind of saying, if you follow counsel, if you do what I've asked, you'll begin to prevail against the people. You will conquer. You will do the thing that we sent you out there to do. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. They were told to not rail against the sects or neither talk against their tenants, but to preach Christ and him crucified, love to God and love of man, observing always to make mention of our principles, thereby, if possible, we may allay the prejudice of the people and be meek and lowly in heart, and the Lord God of our fathers will be with you forevermore. Amen. Now, that's in Joseph Smith's writings as he's writing to these saints, and he's encouraging them to follow the commands of verse 24. Max Parkin has done a lot of work on the Missouri period, and he reports this. He says, some saints did not follow counsel and were viewed as speaking with inordinate zeal for their home in exile. A friend of the saints, his name was Joseph Thorpe. He lamented over what he saw as boasting in some of the saints. He said, The Latter-day Saints, with all their experience in Jackson, began to settle in Clay County and tell the same old tale, that this country was theirs by gift of the Lord, and that it was folly for them to improve their lands, they would not enjoy the fruits of their labor, that it would finally fall into the hands of the saints. And so can you imagine you're Joseph Thorpe and you're seeing these saints settle in Clay, they've just been kicked out of Jackson and they haven't learned anything, and they're telling the non-members, don't even bother uh, putting crops in, this is going to be our land. I mean, I can't even imagine why some of them would have said that, having had that experience, but I also understand what it means to feel the Spirit and to have religious zeal and to be really excited. And sometimes in our zeal, we can appear different or strange to people. And so then he continues, he says, This kind of talk with their insolence and impudent behavior so enraged the citizens that they began to consult about the best course to take to rid themselves of a set of religious fanatics. And so, and there's more, but essentially we get the idea that even in Clay County, the people see the saints as different. And we, meaning the Latter-day Saints, at times probably lead them along that course of thought. And so by 1836, the citizens of Clay County are talking about having the saints move and settle in Wisconsin. And so even as they leave and they go north, it just isn't fixed. Now, later in 1838, there's going to be a war. There's going to be more bloodshed. And so I would say this, that the Missouri period is probably the darkest time in church history. That 1831 to 1838, until we get to the Nauvoo, is just such a dark time. And it's not all one-sided, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And another thing I think is so important, Bryce, about Zion's camp, in just 10 years, Joseph will be gone, and they're going to have to walk again. And there's a 27-year-old who shows up right before Zion's camp with his brother, Asmon, and this 27-year-old is a young man by the name of Wilfred Woodruff. And when he hears about Zion's camp, 
he says, I want to go. Now, Asmon wants to go too, but he has a wife and he has maybe some more responsibilities. Asmon stays, but Wilford Woodruff goes. Brigham Young goes. And these brethren play a significant role in the migration westward in 46 and 47 to bring the saints into Utah. And Bryce, do you think that maybe this experience prepared them for the massive migration, the biggest migration in the history of this country? I suspect that... Part of the genius behind Brigham Young leading the saints out to Salt Lake City came from Joseph Smith guiding Zion's camp from Nauvoo, Illinois to Salt Lake is about the same as Kirtland, Ohio to Jackson County. No disrespect to Brigham Young. He was brilliant and wonderful. But I wonder if part of that genius of leading the saints across the plains to Salt Lake came from Joseph Smith leading Zion's camp to Jackson County. So again, one more thing that comes out of those dark days. Now, this certainly was a dark day in church history. Missouri was a dark period. But let me be very clear. The last chapter of that story is going to be very glorious. If we, the Latter-day Saints, who have come after the Missouri period, learn the lesson they didn't learn, and what I hear in these sections is the Lord begging and pleading that the church today pick up the baton and finish the race gloriously. The Lord is constantly pointing out why they are not building Zion. So go to section 105 at the very beginning. He says, were it not for the transgression of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals. He's not pointing to the finger to a single individual. Were it not for the transgressions of my people, they might have been redeemed even now. We might be living in the greatest city ever. They might have built Zion, and we would be the benefiters of their faithfulness. But because of transgression, the church didn't build the city in their day. The Lord says, Behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands but are full of all manner of evil and do not impart of their substance as become as saints to the poor and the afflicted among them. They are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. And then shout this from the rooftops in 2021. This is one of the things we've got to get out of Come Follow Me this year. Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. We will never build the new Jerusalem that Jesus told the Nephites about, that he told every Old Testament prophet about. We will never live up to our destiny as Latter-day Saints until we learn to live by the laws of the celestial kingdom. Now, we're never going to be perfect, but we could do a lot better. And so verse 6 is a little haunting to all of us. The Lord says, my people, and I think that includes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of 2021, my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. The Lord is going to have a generation worthy to build Zion. The question is, are we that generation? Or is it the next one, or the next one, or the next one? The Lord is going to teach us by the things that we as a church suffer until we become the celestial people he needs us to be. So in verse 9, he puts us the pause button. Therefore, in consequence of transgressions of my people, it is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. We are approaching 200 years of that little season of waiting. Now, notice what we're waiting for. Verse 10, that they themselves may be prepared, that my people may be taught more perfectly and have experience and know more perfectly concerning their duty and the things which I require at their hands. And this cannot be brought to pass until mine elders are endowed with power from on high. In other words, the church will never build Zion until we get a lot better, and that will require temples and temple covenants. 
And so during that little season, during the almost 200 years of a little season, we have become a temple-building people. Now the question is, are the temples that we've built changing us, perfecting us to the point that we've become better? Are we ready to build Zion and do the things that the Lord has required? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about verse 2 that you brought up, Bryce, about were it not for the transgression of my people. And then the Lord doesn't call him out, but he says, speaking concerning the church and not individuals. Look in section 104, verse 4. Therefore, inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept the commandment, but have broken the covenant through covetousness and with feigned words, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. So pulling the thread of history, and and I thank Max Parkin for this, as he's kind of written about the letters that are going back and forth between the North and the South, between Kirtland and Jackson County, there was some tension and In a letter, there were three individuals that were called out in independence, and they were W.W. Phelps, Sidney Gilbert, and Edward Partridge, and yet Joseph loved them, but he also censured them because they had taken issue with the command to build Zion and build a temple based on their condition. And I see their sentiment where they say, Joseph, we could get it built if you were here. I mean, historically, Joseph gets the temple built in Kirtland because he's there. And so there's that tension, and it's kind of underlying the text, but it's not specifically stated. I mean, if we read the Doctrine and Covenants, it doesn't call them out. But there were those letters and there were those communications that happened And so in a letter that Joseph wrote, he wrote, if Zion will not purify herself, God will seek another people. It reminds me of a talk that James E. Faust gave where he talked about Brigham Young standing before the saints after Joseph was killed. And Brigham said, the 12 are going to lead the saints. We're going to go west. And if no one will follow us, then God will raise up a people who will. And I remember reading that in in Elder Faust's talk, and it just really made me think so much about Zion and like relationships and what really matters. I mean, I'm a father, but if I don't do my job as a father, if I don't honor those covenants, God will raise up someone who will. That's a heavy thing to think about. And the Lord said that earlier to Joseph, and the Lord saying that to these saints down in Independence at this time. And I want to just read this about Joseph's love for these people after he hears about the tragedy. So in December of 1833, so we've had the Battle of Blue River. The saints are homeless. The same individuals that Joseph chastised, he wrote this. He said, brethren, when we learn of your sufferings, it awakens every sympathy of our hearts. It weighs us down and we cannot refrain from tears. Joseph loved these men. And yet he knew we can't build Zion if we're just arguing back and forth. And it must have broke his heart. And as I've studied the story of Joseph's traveling down south to Independence with Zion's camp, you see, Joseph kept a journal. Frederick G. Williams was the scribe. And Joseph would dictate what was to be put in the journal. But the journal's lost to us today. We don't have it. And so all we have are the remembrances of George A. Smith And there were others, but a lot of it's going to come from George A. Smith, and he's going to tell us these experiences that Joseph had on Zion's camp. But we see the same sentiment, don't we, Bryce, where there was arguing, and Joseph would chastise them, but you could feel that he loved them. It's so good. So let me throw out a second one for us today in 2021. So do you remember back in 101, the Lord explained why the persecution happened because he said there was jarrings and contentions and lustful and covetous feelings. And we've got to rise above that. If we're going to be the people that go back and build Zion, wherever it's built, we've got to be above that. So we've got to be better. But then the Lord begins to talk about one other thing that we've been doing in the little season. So back to what Mike was talking about, about don't boast and the way you behave, hang on, go to Clay County and hang on, things are going to get better. And then at the very end of verse 26, he says, until the army of Israel becomes very great. He's going to repeat that sentiment in 27. He says, I will soften the hearts of the people as I did Pharaoh, and mine elders whom I have appointed shall have time to gather up the strength of my house. 
So the army needs to become very great. We need time to gather up the strength of the house. And then he says in verse 31, but first let my army become very great and let it be sanctified before me that it may become fair as the sun, clear as the moon, and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. That's a reference first to the Song of Solomon, but then he quotes that early on in this dispensation as he says, the army's about to come out of the wilderness, fair as the sun. So he's talking about us becoming bigger. We've got to gather the army. We need a lot more people to build this city. So let's go gather them. That, verse 32, the kingdoms of this world may be constrained to acknowledge that the kingdom of Zion is in very deed the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Therefore, let us become subject unto her laws. So coming out of this story, I think the message to every Latter-day Saint today in 2021 needs to be pick up where they left off. Live by the laws of the celestial kingdom, and maybe we'll be the people that the Lord will use to build the city that so desperately every Old Testament prophet wanted to be part of. Let's go on missions and preach the gospel and gather up the army until we become very great and very glorious. That is the continuation of the little season. Temples, temple work, missions mission work. And that's the call that the Lord makes on Fishing River and sends them home. And the little season continues. So we're going to end there. Section 104 is wonderful about stewardships and consecration, which Mike and I have addressed. We'd refer you back to some of our earlier podcasts as the Lord hands out stewardships. There's some great lessons there. But I think the lesson this week is to focus on the fullness of times when we build the greatest city ever built and we welcome home our king who will come and fix everything that was ever broken and wipe every tear off of every eye. What a glorious day that will be when Zion is finally redeemed and shall conquer every foe that fights against her. Excellent. And with that, we will see you next week when we talk about sections 106 through 108. And thank you for listening. And also, thank you for sharing. So many have reported back that they've had this podcast shared with them and that they're sharing with others. And we thank you for that. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.